This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. This was not 2008, not a complex web of derivative transactions that meant this was analogous to Bear Stearns or Lehman. The central clearing reforms, the derivative reforms that came from that, uh, the elements of resolution plans that also came from that have dramatically reduced the risk. That was Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England, giving his views on the recent collapse of Credit Suisse into the arms of fellow Swiss lender UBS. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with the key people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm George Hay, the EMEA editor of Reuters Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from London. For this week's episode, I talked to Mark Carney, governor of the Bank of England between 2013 and 2020. Since leaving Threadneedle Street, Mark has been largely focused on the public policy implications of climate change as co-chair of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero and UN Special Envoy for Climate and Finance. He's also pursuing the private investment opportunities of the energy transition as chair of Brookfield Asset Management and head of Transition Investing. All that means he's got some well-developed views on some of the key green finance issues out there. He thinks the US Inflation Reduction Act is an unambiguous good, He thinks companies like BlackRock should recognise that the pushback among some investors to taking climate change seriously is a largely American phenomenon, and he thinks that excessive prudence on behalf of the World Bank could actually increase the likelihood of a so-called climate Minsky moment, where the all-too-apparent impact of climate change leads to major financial losses. But given he also spent seven years as chair of the Financial Stability Board, and given banks are again imploding on both sides of the Atlantic, it seemed a good idea to start by asking him whether the architecture for resolving bus lenders that he helped set up is being correctly deployed. Hi Mark, great to have you on the exchange. George, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Right, well, we're going to be mainly talking about the green transition, but given your experience, I'm sure Breaking Views readers and listeners would love to know your thoughts on some pretty seismic financial issues happening right now. Uh, obviously, one of your former roles was as head of the Financial Stability Board, and you played a key role there in developing the TLAC architecture for bailing in failing banks and bank resolutions. Just wondering, in that context, what do you make of the recent rescues of SVB and Credit Suisse? Um, is the system working as you would have hoped? Yeah, the first thing, um, I think it's always important to uh, use our seismic readers. I would put this more at tremors than, um, I I guess that is seismic, but as opposed to (laughs) full-blown earthquake, having lived through 2008, say that there are some pretty important differences between the two. And one of them, and I'll come back to this, is that loss absorbency in the system is about six times greater now than it was then. Uh, Obviously, we have liquidity in the system as well and the individual institutions, in some case, not enough. SVB, a clear example of, uh, you know, some pretty egregious uh, mismanagement of uh, asset liability mix. But uh, in general, asset quality is uh, is more robust following a period of deleveraging and central bank liquidity support uh, more immediate and comprehensive. But, you know, in in the market system, uh, you will have failures from time to time. And, 
it's important to be able to address those uh, in as orderly fashion as possible. Let me focus, because you asked about TLAC, um, I'll focus in on uh, Credit Suisse. Yeah. Um, and I think the first thing to say is that, boy, it's a good thing um, that there was a TLAC, there was AT1, I mean, different words for different components, AT1, contingent capital, yeah. um, bail-inable debt, if that was a, a had been a choice uh, that the authorities had taken. Much, much more loss absorbency than just the straight equity. So the first is to recognize that that gave authorities many more options and meant that an orderly uh, process could be followed here, first point. Yeah. Second is that uh, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to side with, uh, it, we won't surprise you, the Bank of England, uh, the European uh, authorities as well, uh, in respect the importance of respecting the creditor hierarchy. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just say flat out, um, having not just designed the system with others uh, when I was chair of the Financial Stability Board, but operating it uh, for a period of time as uh, governor of the Bank of England, you know, we take property rights uh, very seriously. And the no creditor worse off in resolution standard is uh, exceptionally important. I do not understand the inversion of that that was pursued uh, by the Swiss authorities. Um, and, you know, it's it, it's an odd thing to say, but I'm not going to be the first person to say it. it might sound odd. It's not odd, I don't think, in the end. But um, if if loss absorbency was required such that equity holders were wiped out and AT1 holders because of the uh, write-down uh, nature of the Swiss-specific securities had to be wiped out, that yeah. is a logical and necessary approach. But that was not what was followed. So it wasn't helpful. And, and it's important to, as quickly as possible, reestablish you know, for the system uh, those uh, those hierarchies that are there. I think it does as well, and I'll hand back to you, George, because you probably have a follow-up, but uh, it, it does as well reinforce the value of bail-inable uh, uh, AT1 um, such that you know the, the the contingent capital holder is is becoming an equity holder. Obviously, you get equity dilution, but potentially, you know, as a residual claimant, um, some return uh, in the event of resolution. Can I make one last point? Actually, I said that was going to be the last yeah. one. Uh, I I am nor I'm not convinced either that the situation was one where it could not be resolved. You know, there was there was a transaction that was on the table from UBS. Uh, certain you know, mechanisms had to be put in place to support that. I don't think that's a surprise. Uh, backstop liquidity, one always expected some element of that in, in the case of a, a, a GCFE. But this is, was not 2008, uh, not a complex web of uh, derivative transactions that meant this was analogous to Bear Stearns or Lehman. You know, the central clearing reforms, the derivative reforms that came from that, uh, the elements of resolution plans that also came from that, um, have have dramatically reduced the risk. So um, there were uh, there were more options. Uh, I'm not saying this wasn't the best option, with the caveat, and I'm not the first to say this, um, but with the caveat that inverting the creditor hierarchy, uh, in my view, was a mistake. So in, in future, you would you would think that the 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 structure set up by the FSB is still perfectly valid. It just and it and it arguably should have been um, followed more more closely in this in the Credit Suisse example, but it just wasn't for particular Swiss reasons, presumably. For particular reasons, which, you know, leave to others to explain. Yes, I think it's valid. I think what it, but in any of these situations, we've got to, we, we have to learn some lessons and I'll, maybe I'll point to a couple and then maybe we move into climate. Uh, the first is, I mean, it underscores that, you know, write down securities um, 
uh, aren't best placed for uh, AT1, right? right? So there's a deep insight. It's better for them to be bailed in, as I say, dilute uh, the equity, but still be a residual claimant. That's right. the structure that most have, as you know, and listeners will, will probably know, and I think that is reinforced by this. The second point, which if I can jump over to the broader challenges, you know, SVB, U.S. regional banks, um, and particularly about the um, greater flightiness, if I can put it that way, of um, particularly uh, SME uh, business deposits um, that we're witnessing in a, in a digital age, um, that will, I think, require some rethinking of, of the assumptions behind uh, the liquidity coverage ratio, the net stable funding ratio. By the way, it's a good idea to actually uh, put in place the next uh, stable funding ratio. That was one of the reforms not uh, not applied fully um, in the U.S. and you know, with some cost, it wouldn't have sa- absolutely saved things, but it would have diminished things. So you know, those assumptions shift, uh, and then it becomes a question, I, I think, about what what is the role of central bank liquidity and liquidity backstops and how broad the range of collateral is taken by those central bankers uh, by those central banks you know the bank of england in effect um, simplifying but banks can choose to give uh, to preposition collateral with the bank of england including their loan books you know both residential and, and commercial and in right. effect a floating co- charge is put there I, I think the system will probably need to adjust both the definitions of LCR and SFR for realities in terms of uh, uh, deposit uh, reduced stickiness um, or flightiness, um, but also adjust liquidity such that liquidity buffers are still buffers. And in order to make that last point true, uh, you need to count access to central bank uh, facilities as part of your calculations. So sorry, there's a lot in there, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I mean, basically on the, um, we want to move on, on to climate, but I mean, I want to start off by talking about inflation. Now, clearly during your time at the Bank of England, inflation was clearly nowhere near where it is now. There is a specific climate element which you mentioned in one of your speeches last year, which is very pertinent to inflation. But just more broadly, first of all, what what, if anything, should central bankers take away from the high inflation we are living through at the moment? Is there anything they could have done differently? Um, and, you know, how do you think about that issue? Yeah, I think, well, they were uh, dealt a very tricky hand. Um, so, you know, if you look over the time, uh, for what it's worth, time when I was governor, inflation averaged just less than 2% uh, over that period, uh, those yeah. seven years. Um, and we had an event a perspective event with Brexit. We knew Brexit was coming. Uh, we we knew that it would be, um, we were very clear about this. We, we felt that it was uh, a major negative supply shock, um, that that would drive the currency down, which it did in anticipation of uh, Brexit. Um, it would push inflation up and, and slow the economy at the same time and potentially put us in a position uh, where we needed to uh, raise interest rates uh, against that. And, you know, that was detailed in various scenarios and, and stress tests that we did. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think objectively, there were a lot of people who criticized us for that uh, and suggested that that kind of scenario was um, uh, extreme. That's exactly what happened. Um, exactly what happened with Brexit. 
And it was reinforced by a series of other supply shocks, obviously with COVID and the hits to labor markets and supply chains uh, and the energy shock. And so, as we all know, central banks have faced a series of negative supply shocks, which have those implications. What could they have done in the face of that? Well, it wouldn't have made sense to tighten policy in advance in possible anticipation of those supply shocks, right? You could see what you would need to do once the Brexit deal was agreed or and uh, and put into place you would see where the drift of policy would go uh, it would be good to prepare people for that and then obviously covid energy hit as truly exogenous shocks in in, in in the true sense of the word i think you know with hindsight and this is always dangerous but hindsight it could have been better explained that the scale of the supply shocks was such from the start that yeah. it was uh, inflationary and would require some tighter policy that right. said, I think what we really need to, and people are a bit loose with the criticism because, you know, the idea that central banks could have materially tightened policy such that they continued to hit their inflation targets in the wake of this, you know, the scale of the COVID shock and the energy shock in Europe, UK, plus in the case of UK Brexit, I just, I just don't think that's realistic. Um, you know, the orders of magnitude, I mean, actually, when you when you make that or when you apply those statements that somehow uh, the Bank of England could have uh, ensured that uh, inflation uh, remained around target in the wake of these, uh, you need to quantify the orders of magnitude of, um, of, uh, of, of bank rate increases that would have been required in order to deflate other parts of the economy. And, right. okay. you know, it's just not realistic. Um, okay. Well, so um, that's my take. Okay. In in the speech you made uh, last year, which is more specifically about climate change, you mentioned that the net zero transition can be expected to put upward pressure on inflation in the initial decade of the transition, by this one, the one we're in. I mean, just given given that we are now in a situation of high in inflation, um, how much of a problem is that for central bankers? And you know, what what if anything can they do about it to to, to mitigate it? Well, I think the first thing is also to, and it slightly goes back to our previous discussion, um, which is an element of that, those up, that upward pressure on inflation comes from um, the reorganization of the economy and the friction that comes in the economy is, yeah. as, as it reorganizes for lower carbon. That's the first point. I mean, and we should recognize, um, you know, those with you and I and those listening, we should recognize that what's happening is that we're putting in place or what's being put in place is an energy system which is lower cost right yeah. i mean it's a lower yeah. cost more reliable eventually, more sustainable yeah. yeah i mean it's not just eventually i mean literally you know as you ramp up i mean the levelized cost of wind the levelized cost of solar sure. in advanced economies is lower than any other energy sure. uh, source so it's not like a promise down the road it's just a question of, of of the scale of that what is a bigger deal is the uh you know industrial decarbonization and those other uh those other aspects i mean big changes to the economy i'm not trying to diminish them but i'm just saying we should recognize that the third thing is to recognize the um you know the likely orders of magnitude of this in other words this is um a bit of uh, you know this is an added um philip and i i use that maybe term advisedly um, to inflation. So it's, you know, it's in the IMF did some more work on this in the um, in their last WIO. Um, and, you know, it's order of magnitude. I think they come up 25 basis points. 
uh, on inflation, maybe maybe slightly more. Okay. So it's not percentage points. Um, what I and then the fourth thing um, is what do you do as a policymaker in in this environment? And I think you yeah. take you take two lessons. One, as the central banker, it goes back to our supply shock discussion. So you you, you focus on the supply side. You've got to lean a bit against this, uh, and it is a question of calibration. And then part of what determines how much how uh, much you need to lean against this is how effective climate policy is itself. So if climate policy is credible, it's predictable, it's effective, then it's going to be a smoother transition, and you know we'll get more growth and less inflation than we would otherwise. And you know Janet Yellen and I, um, with with Philip Hildebrand, a few others, did some work, Helen Ray, on on exactly this set of issues for the G30. Um, and really, you know, I think showed pretty clearly that actually, and, and the, the speech you're referring to, the Volcker uh, lecture yeah. uh, I gave last year, pulls this out, that this is one of the lessons, this is where climate policy can be like monetary policy and done properly, credibly and predictably, um, can yield much better outcomes. Okay, interesting. I mean, there's a kind of segue of sorts into another question, which is just that, I mean, we, we've had... You know, obviously, you you kind of were a bit of a trailblazer with your tragedy of the horizons speech, but uh, a long time ago now. And we've had the network for the greening of the financial system, and um, uh, a lot of there's been a, a ECB as well. A lot of central bankers seem to have come on board to the idea that climate policy and monetary policy, and more climate policy, is something that central bankers should worry about. But there has been some pushback of sorts. You some senior noted people like Jay Powell. Uh, your predecessor, Mervyn King, uh, some others, they're more skeptical about whether monetary policy and climate policy go together. I mean, why? Uh, well, I mean, why are they why are they wrong? Well, um, well, I mean, as you set up the question, that is wrong um, <laughs> because we're not talking about monetary policy and climate policy. We're talking about financial stability and right. micro and macro prudential policy uh, and climate policy. I mean, what we just went through was the impact of the transition on nominal, uh, you know, nominal factors and prices, and you know what the monetary policy response is to that. So that's just a, you know, it's something that's happening in the economy, and you respond to it. There is a there is a separate question. You know, central banks do more than one thing. Okay, first point: central banks do more than one thing. Virtually every central bank, there 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 are very few monetary institutes left in the world, and part of the reason there aren't is that that model failed. Um, that model failed in the run-up to the financial crisis. And one of the things that uh, you have to do if you're at a place like the Bank of England, which has responsibility for managing macro risks, is anticipate risks, prepare the system to uh, yeah. be resilient to those risks, and, and et cetera. And that's what drives you know, 130 central banks around the world to say that we as individual central banks need to be putting in place micro and macro prudential policies to address uh, the risks associated with the trans uh, the net zero transition. Two sets of risks. One, we, the world doesn't do anything about it. Physical risks dominate. And secondly, mm -hmm. uh, the world does do something about it, It's either, but it's either abrupt or chaotic. And that has its own impacts um, or the, uh, the firms don't actually anticipate. Let me make one other point which is that, you know, Jay Powell said a few months ago at the Reichsbank, uh, the send-off for Stefan Ingves, he said, um, central banks should not make climate policy. That was the quote. Right. That's exactly right. 
you know, governments make climate policy. Right. But central banks, particularly those central banks who have, as I say, macro and micro prudential responsibilities, have to make micro and macro prudential policies to address climate risks. And I, you know, on, on, on that side of the ledger, you have, as I say, 130 central banks, you have the Basel Committee for Banking Supervision, you have, you know, every, uh, you have the International Monetary Fund, you have the Financial Stability Board, you have every single macro prudential, micro prudential body and institution coming down on one side. So I don't think this is a right. big debate. And if, if it, the straw man, last point to where I started, which if it, if it gets twisted into monetary policy for climate reasons, well, okay. Okay, fine, but nobody's saying that. So there you go. Okay, fair enough. There's a, another kind of D to go along with um, decarbonisation is uh, deglobalisation, which is also a an uh, increasing feature. I just wondered uh, against that backdrop how you saw the US Inflation Reduction Act, which I mean, you speak to some people who are kind of worried about the protectionist elements of it and um, what that will do to the efficiency of the energy transition you also speak to people who just think it's a it's basically a um that the positives vastly outweigh the negatives this one where, where do you sit on that yeah i th- i think the first thing to say is it does i'm very much in the camp of um you know this is truly landmark uh legislation um yeah. and um and it's been um uh responded to i was going to say imitated but responded to around the world we've seen uh, the steps taken in uh, Europe uh, in recent weeks, um, and literally, if I'm allowed to you know, disclose the day we're uh, disclosing it, uh, the Canadian budget's out uh, today, um, right. and we'll have a number of measures that, in many cases, match what's in the uh, in the US IRA. Uh, so uh, that's first. Second, to put the orders of magnitude, and I'll appeal to a third party source on this, um, the orders of magnitude of of what's in the IRA. Some of people listening will have seen, you know, Goldman Sachs does a, a, a decarbonization curve, uh, which basically looks at different technologies and the price per ton uh, the, for the carbon reduction. Um, and their decarbonization curve for the United States post Inflation Reduction Act, as a, re- as a result of that, has gone down by 75 percent. Yeah. Uh, this absolutely enormous orders of magnitude average reduction per ton at a, a little more than $50 uh, per ton. Right. So th- these are big, big moves. And of course, the spillover benefits from the technological uh, developments from that uh, or efficiencies uh, will accrue to the world, just like they did from, for example, the development of offshore wind in the United Kingdom and a few other jurisdictions, you know, is helping offshore wind in Vietnam and elsewhere uh, there. So that's all to the good. Yes, there are um, some elements of the uh, of uh, the IRA which um, are you know build build in America or buy American um, on the yeah. supply chain, um, and yes, that you know at a higher level is um, is less than globally optimal. Speak like an economist, um, allocative efficiency, but it's also understandable. And, uh, you know, there's value to having free trade agreements with the United States and Canada gets the benefit of that. We are much less affected in Canada by those provisions uh, because of uh, USMCA, yeah. the successor to NAFTA. 
and it's a reason, you know, it's another reason why uh, it would be advantageous for other jurisdictions to have these agreements with the U.S. with the Inclu states, including Europe. Uh, very much including Europe. Very much including yeah. Europe. And it's not that's that's not why the U.S. did it, but it is one of the consequences of not having it. I, I would say, and maybe last thing on it, my sense is that U.S. authorities within the legislation, you know, within their flexibility, given that this is legislation that isn't going to be reopened, U.S. authorities are trying to be appropriately flexible for uh, European partners in, in, in yeah. some of these value chains, right? So, yeah, uh, you, I think it's, I think, I think just to give you the punchline, maybe I should have started, it, this <laughs> is uh, an unambiguous good. The RA, right. yeah. Okay, that's clear. I mean, uh, just to kind of link the the EU and US. I mean, the, the, they've done, they've had an agreement which came out roughly around the same time as COP26, but it was specifically to do with kind of um, trying to get greener steel. And there was, there's been some kind of talk about whether the EU and the US could, and, and other uh, jurisdiction could be part of a kind of carbon club and I don't know if that would have any kind of external green tariff or not but obviously the U European Union's got its carbon border adjustment mechanism that's going to come in um, do you see any kind of situation where you could have like a, a US EU carbon club outside which there would be a lot of you know very keen decarbonizing nations keen to to, to join it or is yeah. that kind of is that a kind of pipe dream or well, I think the, I, you know, your question's well-framed uh, because it starts with the green steel and a, uh, and a, a, and a product standards approach, yeah. which I've always felt was the more likely place that these carbon club uh, or CBAM discussions would end up. Uh, in right. other words, because otherwise, uh, you're either in, everybody has to have a carbon price, and if you don't have a carbon, you know, which, which is WTO uh, consistent, if you don't have a carbon price, um, then um, you can't come in or you, you face the tariff or you're in a very complicated uh, estimation of the shadow carbon price. You know, you're mapping regulation subsidies to carbon price to try to do an estimate of whether you're being sufficiently ambitious compared to each other and therefore inside the CBAM wall, if I can put it that way. The alternative is, well, how much carbon is in the product um, and really yeah. focusing in on you know, sectors that are heavy emitting, uh, uh, you know, in other words, carbon intensive and tradable. Um, and, you know, there's some pretty important sectors in that. Steel's one of them, but there's not that many. Um, right. And, you know, you can work it out. So I think that type of approach um, feels right. I think there is a question from a, I, I guess the, the challenge I'd put to it, though, is we want global decarbonization. And if the carrot is, um, uh, green, you know, equivalent low carbon steel or aluminium uh, yeah. from uh, you know the emerging world. Why wouldn't we let them into the into the club? And I, I think that's that is important and will be important over time. It creates a big incentive if it is if it is there. Right, but I mean, I think it's it's got some. It seems to be gaining some kind of tracks in this kind of idea amongst. Um, you know, maybe surprisingly amongst Republicans in the US who see it as a way to push back on China, which I, I don't know if that is is helpful or, or potentially harmful for the, to the debate. It depends which how you see it, I suppose. Yeah, I I think that 
you know, one of the big issues, um, and there are a number of issues in the, you know, in the uh, in the rewiring, if I can put it that way, of the global economy. So broader set of issues around, you know, supply, uh, you know, friendshoring, um, uh, energy security, climate transition, etc. One of the big issues is what is strategic and what um, where. Uh, again, I'll use uh, the Secretary of the Treasury's term, friendshoring, where friendshoring is preferred. Um, or encouraged uh, or required uh, three levels versus what is um, subject to the rules of uh, uh, global competition. And given the scale of what's required on decarbonization, point one, given um, the critical elements of supply chains, of certain supply chains, you know, wind, solar, others, uh, point two, storage uh, as well, you know, it would be preferable if there were if 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 uh, the decarbonization value chain were more part of the second as opposed to the first strategic component, right? So right, the cut would have uh, it's, but you know, there's there there's a variety of forces here. Um, okay. There's there's local needs. There's uh, national security considerations, and uh, you know we can't. Uh, I'm I'm not Panglossy, and we can't isolate climate from uh, those broader broader forces. Yeah. Okay. What about what about G funds then? Um, so the, the the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, it's this attempt to mobilise um, 150 trillion dollars of private sector balance sheets and assets to invest in the green transition. So you know we, we've seen Vanguard, um, a big US asset manager, and GLS, a not so big German bank, leave <laughs> for very very different reasons. Um, it's, it's just. There, some people have expressed a, train, a, a concern that G, you know, is there a danger that G fans withers down to a, a small group of like true believers who, who still are kind of, you know, bravely fighting for limiting temperatures to uh, temperature rises to 1.5 degrees C. How, how can we stop that happening? And or, or do you do you not see that as a particular danger? Well, I it's it's um it's a strange definition of wither if um the, the <laughs> balance okay. sheets of G fans were 120 trillion or 130 trillion, sorry, uh at at uh, at Glasgow and they're 150 trillion today after we've had a twenty five percent. That is very odd. Yeah. In fact it's the opposite. So I think that's the first I mean I think yeah. Like just the scale of the institutions, uh, and you know, like I, I can point to, uh, I'll give you two examples, just because uh, you know, within the last couple of weeks. But you know, go on the on the Citigroup uh, website, the NatWest website, um, and look at their transition plans that they just put right. out, and the detail behind those transition plans, and the fact that you know, you, you cannot read those and not realize that, uh, or if you read those, maybe I'll put it in the positive, you realize that these this, this is embedded in their in their core strategy, um, and you know, for good reason, they they see a commercial opportunity alongside the the global imperative, and uh, you're going to see more and more of that, and. And, and you know we're we're running at roughly you know t- relative to commitments in terms of what's being delivered in terms of interim uh, targets and transition plans we're running at twice the pace you know of uh, you know more than two times of is what being delivered relative to uh, uh, to the milestone so uh, it's uh, it's got more momentum now but what's the point of it all the point of it all isn't commitments and um, you know uh, frameworks. I mean, you need those in order to get get that going and and have discipline around it. But the point is to get capital to where the emissions are uh, and get those emissions down. And I think what you'll see increasingly is that capital on the ground, both by individual institutions 
Um, but through um, uh, big financing, such as uh, the JetP uh, for Vietnam um, and yeah. Indonesia, those two examples, and you know, just for those who haven't followed it closely, these are major financings. Um, so for uh, 35 billion in uh, total financing across those two countries, um, GFAN's providing more than half of it. Um, and in the case of Indonesia, it's 20% reduction in emissions relative to baseline by 2030. And for Vietnam, it's 30% reduction. I mean, these yeah. are big deals and impactful deals. And I think see more of that. And one of the opportunities with uh, this upcoming COP is to, if you will, to have uh, industrial jet fees, uh, you know, uh, for specific industry sectors or uh, technologies that help to accelerate uh, those transitions. So, as it wouldn't um, necessarily be for um, countries, you, you might. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean for for companies. So we need to, we need to, you know, uh, you know, in in the um, in the OECD countries, if I can put it that way decarbonization, you know, you have policy framework and the real action is in the companies. Um, In the emerging and developing world, you do have that, but as well, you tend in in, in many of the big emitting countries, you need um, to kind of what's called a country platform or a just energy transition partnership where the country strategies change, um, ramping down or shutting down coal, ramping up renewable. Yeah. um, And everything's brought as a package. So I think we'll see more and more of that. uh, Okay. Interesting. I mean, I just, I mean, uh, I, I take what you're saying about the fact that GFANS is all about now is all about kind of getting these big companies to set transition plans and and some are doing that. But I'm just interested, what, what would you say to a company like BlackRock, which is simultaneously kind of trying to cater to green conscious investors and also kind of Republican states that are seem to be actively angered by the idea of anyone doing that? I mean, and quite a few of the big banks on GFANS are in a kind of analogous situation so like what how how do you counsel them in that where they've kind of seemingly got to say the same thing at, at the same time at different things at the same time well look the uh well first you you um my experience is um in in many walks of life is it you should always say the same thing to uh whatever the audience um and you might have to <laughs> um adjust your message to uh, the level of uh, familiarity with the subject matter. So, you know, talking about AT1 and JetPs and TLAC and all that stuff, uh, if you're visiting um, anyone halfway normal in Georgia, that just proves that you and I are not halfway normal. I'm afraid to our podcast <laughs> oh, listeners that might say, oh, same, but, yeah. but you know what I mean? You, you have to, you know, so you have to adjust, but the, but the message needs um, uh, should be the same. So, and right. I think that, you know, for, and I, I'm not going to speak, uh, you know, for Larry Fink or, or BlackRock, they're perfectly more than capable of doing it themselves. But I think the message is, uh, and, and we're increasingly seeing this, um, that the economic opportunity and the climate impera- uh, imperatives are lining up very, uh, very clearly, uh, and particularly uh, in the United States. Um, uh, and, you know, they, they say they're, uh, uh, I, I just I just think the scale of what of, of investment coming and I'll, I'll stick with the U.S., where, which is really the epicenter of this debate. It's not a to be candid and you, you, you cover the world. It's not a big debate outside the U.S. Um, it's more a U.S. Uh, center debate. U.S. is very important, obviously, but it's you know, this is not rampant around the world. 
the uh, you know we're talking about potentially three trillion of investment over the course of the next uh, through to 2035 additional investment in the US. Those are enormous numbers even for the US uh, with huge uh, multiplier impacts on growth and jobs and incomes uh, there. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, you said BlackRock, um, I, I will say BlackRock, I'll you know say same thing about Brookfield, we will be funding a, a huge component of this as will others. Um, and um, the facts on the ground, and we'll be in the process of that delivering you know, secure energy because it's domestic, lower cost, uh, more sustainable uh, with the uh, and more reliable uh, energy system uh, in the United States. So, you know, eventually the facts on the ground um, and the absence of, um, <laughs> of greenhouse gases in the air or the reduction in greenhouse gases in the air will speak for themselves. OK, just um, last question then, um, just combining two of your favorite themes of going back to TLAC, but climate stuff as well. I mean, you t you talked before and people talked in general about a kind of climate Minsky moment. Do you think, despite whatever the Swiss Central Bank and FINMA have and haven't done over Credit Suisse, if we did get a climate Minsky moment, do you think like the, the TLAC infrastructure would be able to kind of withstand that kind of, would it would, you know, is it, is it set up to to withstand such a moment? I think that's, I mean, it's a great question to end on. Uh, that's one of the challenges. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, quote uh, my, my former colleague, uh, she's still at the Bank of England, Sarah Breeden, who rightly points out that, you know, in the end, you can't diversify the financial system away from climate change. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a point I made a couple of weeks ago in a speech in Paris, which was that, you know, there's this paradox of prudence where, you know, individually rational, uh, behavior by firms, but actually, in this case, I was talking about the World Bank and other multilateral development banks not being aggressive enough on addressing climate change, um, you know, has the consequence of, you know, uh, that, you know, making a Minsky moment, climate Minsky moment more likely, which um, is going to um, <laughs> you know, impair uh, a jealously guarded AAA um, balance sheet. Uh, right. present. Whereas if you deploy it more effectively today, you reduce that risk in the future. Um, and it's it's a win-win. There are there, there, you know, there are definitely multiple equilibria here. And um, we're moving towards the better one. We're not there. We've got a lot more to do in order to get there. Um, so um, uh, I, and there's there's not a capital structure. You know, I, 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 I'll finish. Maybe I'll quote uh, James Gorman, the CEO of uh, Morgan Stanley a few years yeah. ago said, uh, well, you're not going to have a financial system if you don't have a planet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's the punchline, right? Well, as long as we're respecting the creditor hierarchy, though, that's the that's clear. <laughs> well, yeah. The, that's, we may not have we may not have a planet, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least the creditor hierarchy is in place. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Well, um, listen. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on the exchange, uh, Mark. It was a pleasure to have you. Uh, it was my pleasure, and thank you, George. And uh, keep up the good work. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes on Megaphone or your favourite podcast app. Also check out our sister podcast, The Views Room, and check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. 
What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.